probably my first exposure to hypnosis was music trance states and flow states, which I'm expert in. That's what I do for my main living. And music was my first real trance state, the most pleasurable, the most lasting. And I thought when I went to Yale, I was going as a music major. But I ended up finding out that the other side of music reminds me of the other side of, like, I'm a very right brain person. And it's a left brain world. And so when I got to Yale, their way of teaching music was mathematical and theoretical. And I didn't love that. I loved feeling music, singing music, being in music, not toward perfection, but toward immersion. And so I've sort of been in October Project, the person who is always the allegiant to the non-singer, allegiant to the non-musician. And when I got to Yale, I really, really fell in love with poetry and literature again, but in a really, really significant and deep way. And that was my music. That is my music still. Tell me about October Project. How did that come to be? Well, as early as high school, my husband and I were writing songs together. As early as my childhood, my brother and I were writing songs together. So it started pretty early for me. And then the relationship with my husband, Emil Adler, who's still in October Project and is still my Number one, when I went off to school, he went to a different school and he was getting his master's degree in music. So I met Marina, who's one of the most proficient and beautiful musicians ever. And the three of us sort of just started collaborating in a collegiate sort of way. And it ended up being a sort of senior project. And Emil helped us with that. And then when we graduated, we went into a musical theater development program in New York City that still exists today called the BMI Musical Theater Workshop. And so we were there and were able to develop our professional level skills. But we ended up not doing theater music, but doing a pop project, October project, which was just surprisingly successful. We got signed. We went to Sony Music. We were a big hit in a sort of independent way. Um, Someone's bringing me a sandwich. Isn't that wonderful? Now you know why I love Emil. The outcome of that was that we went through a bunch of different incarnations and I disconnected with people that I liked and I loved that had musical affinity and we all just got together and became October Project. And I don't know that we ever thought we would be with a major label or touring the world or any of that. But I was really a behind-the-scenes person. If people meet me, they could mistake me for an extrovert, but that's hard won. I'm pretty much a poet. I am pretty much an introvert. And so when October Project first came out, it wasn't my dream to be public. It was more my dream to produce work and to collaborate and be in a we that was made up of strong individuals. And that's what October Project was initially. It still is, but differently. So my understanding is that y'all actually got to perform at a CBGB at one point in Manhattan. Yeah, it was... That was actually not the right venue for us, but as a result of us being in that venue, they formed a second venue called CB313, which was, you know, much more acoustic cafe or chill music kind of thing. But at the time we played there, we were in contrast to the other artists. I still don't know how we ended up getting booked there. I think that when we went in, I do remember going in there and stepping over this dog that either looked like or was named Cher. It had this beautiful long nose and it was just a beautiful, elegant dog and I oohed and odd over the dog because I'm a puppy person and I think we just kind of walked in and we were willing to play anytime anywhere under any circumstance and the guy felt sorry for us and booked us and sort of just sandwiched us in and said you know I kind of like you you can play here and it was a big place to play in New York and the first time we played there our manager who ended up being our long-term manager and getting us signed to Sony saw us there He was there to see a different band. He was there to see an Icelandic heavy metal band named Deep Jimmy and the Zepp Creams. And we were sort of like the whipped cream in that that evening. And he heard it. 
And he was like, I get this. This is really cool. And it's going to be a slow build. You've got to do the actual work, the artistic work, and let the business come from that. And so he really, he really gave us a good full year, 18 months to develop in the right way so that when we emerged as an artist, we emerged on the momentum and wave of our artistry, which is very difficult to do in the world of music or film or those arts. I, I do think the great aspect of social media is that more people have been able to claim a space as an individual artist, prove the concept of what they're doing by just having people love it and follow it. And then the gatekeepers come in and try to close the gate. You know, that happens a lot, artist versus marketplace. So we were lucky we got to bridge our artistry with the marketplace and be successful with both, which is a rare, rare thing. It's like winning the Hunger Games. You know, it's a lottery of sorts. Yeah, I know. I mean, obviously, it's not, it's really no secret the music business is challenging. And then, you know, also being a woman in the music business, obstacles, as you said, you kind of have to overcome. And I know you mentioned uh, Marina and you've been friends since college. Can you kind of share like what it was like to kind of have that camaraderie as you're going through this experience of being in the music business and being women in it and this kind of reflection? Yeah, I and to still be doing that and to encounter different, when we were young, there were no women anywhere doing anything. When we were at Yale together, women were new at Yale. It was still a new concept. So first we went through that and the surprises of that and the humor of being a female creature that was seen a certain way by men at the time. Best expressed, I think, in the series Mad Men. I really feel that series caught the early experience of my life and career. But being with Marina always has given me a kind of bond and resilience to the world because to have a best friend is a very sacred thing. And I feel like female friendships have gained so much ground. And Marina and I were both raised with a lot of brothers. Neither of our mothers was raising a girl to have high self-esteem. You know, it was more like raising a girl to be good for the world we were entering. I just remember my parents always being like, well, you know, look, you just really have to learn to type because that's what girls can do. You know, you can get always get a job if you can type. And, you know, I think about that now and I'm like, what? You've got to be kidding me <laughs> to type so that I can, you know, now it's so beautifully different. I was talking to Katie about how much I really love what you're doing because I didn't know that my way forward would be in allegiance with other women. At the time, I remember being brought up and my own mother telling me, Women don't help each other. Women compete. And I went into life, and that proved to be absolutely wrong, absolutely wrong in every single way. Every major experience I've had, every major breakthrough or help that people have given, it's, it's mostly been from women. Women have connected me. Women have taught me. Women have supported me. Women have understood that I might need to cry when something awful happens and not just soldier on it's the bond of women is going to evolve the future and i think the way that women now are being mothers is is very powerful i meet girls even my nieces you know who are growing into women they they have a different sense of themselves because their moms went through what they went through but having a best friend to go through it in your teens your 20s your 30s your parenting and then where we are now in our life and both of us just kind of being like we're going to show them how it's done when you're old so you have a thing to look forward to girls you know we will take a break to thank our sponsors, and we'll be right back with Girls That Create on Word of Mom Radio. She is brave. She is bold. She is you. And we want to tell your story. Are you ready to share your journey with us on Word of Mom Radio? Go to wordofmomradio.com and register as a guest. We want to tell your story because when you win, we all win. 
Healing Through the Arts, a wonderful creative program by Arte Gallery and sponsored by Visit Bucks County down in New Hope, Pennsylvania in February, March, and April. Join the team at Arte Gallery and showcase wonderful artists who are healing problems through the arts, whether it's a sickness and illness, miscommunication, barriers on cultural divides or racism and things. Everything is addressed through the creative process. Join us for classes, lectures, and beautiful displays of healing through the arts at Arte Gallery. For more information, log on to artegallery.com. That's A-R-E-T-E gallery.com. Unsilenced Voices has been working diligently in Ghana, Sierra Leone, Rwanda, and the USA to combat domestic violence, sexual abuse, and human trafficking. We currently have over 50 young girls on a wait list in Sierra Leone to go through a vocational training program to get them off the streets and out of harm's way. We have gifted over $33,000 to U.S. survivors and are looking for volunteers and donors to help us continue our cause. Please visit us at www.unsilencedvoices.org. Again, unsilencedvoices.org for more information. Are you experiencing insomnia, brain fog, hot flashes, mood swings, and more? These are many of the symptoms women experience on a daily basis affecting the health of their brain and increasing the risk for dementias like Alzheimer's disease down the road. A healthy lifestyle can make a big difference for the health of the brain, but Brain Love Health took it further and created an innovative nutritional supplement, especially for women, to support us through this transitional time while also promoting better sleep and long-term brain health. Don't wait any longer to help your brain age well. Why let it deteriorate? The health of your brain is in your hands. To begin protecting it today, visit BrainLoveHealth.com. That's B-R-A-I-N-L-O-V-E-H-E-A-L-T-H.com. Don't let the name fool you. StadiumBags.com is not just for sports fans. Our clear bags make it easier for you to get into any venue that you go to. And in today's world where we are so concerned about germs, the materials that our bags are made with are strong enough to stand up to the solvents that you can use to clean your bag so you know you come home safely. So check out stadiumbags.com. You'll see why we are the clear choice because safety, it's in the bag. We're back on Bird of Mom Radio and Girls That Create. And I'm speaking with poet and musician Julie Flanders. Were you always writing poetry, even when you were with, like, doing songwriting? Were you also writing kind of poetry? I mean, I know they kind of flow together and intertwine, Mm -hmm. but did you kind of realize what you were actually also kind of gravitating towards writing poetry in your songwriting? Yeah, that's a great question, really, because songwriting and poetry are different. And for me, there's often a lot more of a bridge between them than there probably should be because I was really thinking about this question and how the distinction between a song or a lyric and a poem for me is that in a song, you have to really give up the ego of the words doing the work of the music. So I'm always trying when I'm working in a song to just bow my ego into the wholeness that the music may tell the story and cleverness or, you know, more technique. There are songwriters that are very impressive with how they write a song, but then you don't feel it in your heart. So I'm more of the feel it in your heart school of songwriting and trying to invite the listener to develop their own story of a song. So there's a kind of participation and opening a portal for them 
to fill something in and not to be told what the meaning of it is. And for poetry, I think I've held a lot of that. And the difference being that there's much more room for the words to be an instrument. And I was thinking about how in poetry for me, I retain lyricism as one of my primary elements, lyricism, mystery, rhyme, and a sense of flow, which are very songwriting connected. And then there are poets I really admire who have tremendous reference points for really specific use of language, like they can conjure a very striking image and use language in a more, I don't even know how to say it, but uh, directorial almost. They're directing the reader to read the poem a certain way with their prowess. And I admire it because it's not easy to do, but it's not me either. But poetry is first for me. And even a lot of the songs that come out of poems end up being very different because we husk the poem for the best lyric part. But when a poem is just a poem, the space between the words and the way the words rub up against one another, to me, that's where the music of the poem is, not necessarily in the words, but in how they're falling across time and space to make a music inside the reader or the listener. So Why that's what I took from the question. Why did you decide to finally publish Joyride? What made you kind of think, you know what, I'm going to put it all together. I'm going to put this out there. Well, people have been reading my poems and really requesting that I put them together like that. So I was working with a visual artist at that time, and he offered to typeset the text and create a cover for me. And I really loved his work. And then he became ill and was never able to finish that. So I found the photograph and I thought, you know, I just have to put them together and title them and get a table of contents. And it really is a book. So that was the first one, and it came from being a mother and being overwhelmed and deluged with stresses and strains, and my young child and my mother died, and a lot of things happening, a lot of grief, and no time. And I think no time was the main creative limitation. So I gave myself poetry practice that I did daily, which was to take two random words, and whatever time I had available, it could be 10 minutes, it could be 20 minutes, not I don't think I ever had more than that. And I had to take the two words and I would feel whatever feeling I was having and I would wait for the music of that feeling to arrive as words. And then I would take the two words and I had to use them both in the poem and I had to finish the poem in one sitting and I gave myself the rule that I couldn't look back. I couldn't go back and rewrite the poem because that would enter a different part of the expectations of myself. And my only expectation of myself at the time was simply to give voice to creative expression. And so I've taught a lot of women that if you're mothering, that is a lot of your creative energy. If you're also working, that is a lot of your creative energy. But you need to make little spaces for yourself to create. And as a parent, I think that the greatest gift you can give a child is to demonstrate to them ways of belonging to themselves before they belong to the world through their own self-connection, whether that's reading or journaling or listening to music, which is a powerful one for many kids. It's like, how do you get a child to know that their inner world is sacrosanct and they need to spend time and energy in that space that's theirs alone, you know, not to be shared until afterward, then they can share the fruits of that. I really am glad that I put on that practice 
because it really changed my life a lot. It taught me I could get done a lot more than I thought I could get done in smaller increments of time. One of the things I really enjoyed about the short animated film Doubts, which I think is such an important message for, you know, adults and kids, and it kind of makes me think about what you were just talking about. So how did you become involved with that project and what and kind of brought that all together? Because it's something that I want to share with my daughters when I watched it. Oh, that's wonderful. I was putting together my poetry release, I think, maybe for, I don't think it was for Joy Red, I think it was for Shadow Breathing. And we wanted to figure out, well, how do you make poetry interesting to people that don't really get that poetry is interesting? And I had that poem, and I thought, well, I thought of a particular person I know who doesn't particularly love poetry, but like song. And I thought, well, you know what? What if this were, if I entered a spirit of whimsy and delight, and yet, you know, the subject of doubts is really the condition of human suffering. It's really what we say to ourselves and do to ourselves that causes us to suffer. And so we had an intern, a creative intern at that time, and she had never, ever before done an animation. And so I said, well, I'll write it with you and we can conceive what the images should be. And you draw so well. Why don't you teach yourself some animation? I think it'll be wonderful for you. And so she said, sure. And then she started to come up with these beautiful, oh, just heartfelt, incredible images. Um, So we all sort of pitched in together and took the audio and those images. And then Emil put the music and the sound behind it, which really does make a really big difference. And then we edited it and got really excited to share it uh, with no idea that it was going to go bigger than the live event and just that it would be posted on YouTube. But it ended up one of our other interns said, you know, you should put this into film festivals. And we said, oh, okay, how do we do that? And so he signed us up for something called Film Freeway. And we started to submit it to film festivals. And all of a sudden, we just were getting this wave of interest back. It was used to keynote a very large conference of women's rights and empowerment in Canada with Justin Trudeau's wife there. And then I won an award for the voiceover. And we were invited to attend or have the work appear in 29 festivals by the time it was done. Which just showed me the power of faith. And that's the other part of Marina is that she and I will decide to do something with no idea how to do it. And then it starts to happen. And so we just, you know, we get excited and we follow it up and see where it leads. Well, it's a wonderful film, and we will put a link to it in our show notes so everyone can oh, see you. you shared about how writing has impacted your life. Uh, why do you think it's such a powerful art form and that more people should think about exploring it as a, a creative outlet? Wow. Yeah, that, that's like a very important and profound question, especially now as we are moving to very rapid, mainly visual audio forms of communication, which are very very satisfying, but they lack what writing gives. I once read an article in, I believe it was a journal of advanced haptics, and I was in a dental office. I don't know why that was probably the only magazine to pick up. But it turns out haptics are our relationship with the physical ways we interact with, for example, a computer or a pencil. The haptics are the feeling of that. And the article went to show that people could engage a computer without really engaging themselves. So students who took notes on a computer did not internalize a lecture as well as students who took notes with a pen or a pencil. So I started to look up on that, and it turned out that writing quiets the mind, integrates the left and right brain, brings a person into greater awareness of their self-relationship, and allows them to hear what's in their mind and what's in their heart. 
And I think the author, Julia Cameron, probably gave people one of the great gifts of the century, which was to develop and express the idea of morning pages, which is just to get up and journal three pages before you do anything else in your day. And when I do morning pages, my life goes better. And when I don't do morning pages, I struggle more. So I think that there's something in it. The morning page is basically being a frame you show up to where you meet yourself with no judgment. And to me, writing gives people a space for that in a world where there's a lot of judgment and a lot of trolling and a lot of canceling, a lot of meanness. And writing's a place where you can restore a good quality yourself relationship. Absolutely. I think it's important for people to remember that you can create something just for yourself and understand that it, it can be messy and imperfect and all over the place, but it's just for you and that's all right. And just take that time yeah. to do Yeah. Joyride for me was for myself, for its own sake. And I think actually that's something that we are missing in this world. It's very consumer oriented. Do something so that. And I think so that is not the point of life so that something else can happen, so that something else can happen. No, what's happening is the thing itself. And it's for you. It's for its own sake. Yeah, I agree with that so very much, Erin. It's really important. Dancing and painting also can do it. You know, as long as the person is freeing themselves with what they choose. Writing is difficult because it's used functionally so much. So for some people, it's easier to use dance or or meditation or painting to get that self-relationship but there's really no substitute for the journaling writing self-expression part of writing you know as opposed to the expository or functional or business writing all those communications tools which are great they're tools but I'm talking about writing as an instrument of self-connection and spiritual expression if you have a kiddo in your life who you can tell is into poetry gravitating towards the art how could you support them? And, you know, what advice do you have of girls who are dreaming about becoming a writer, becoming a songwriter even, or even a poet? Like, what what kind of advice would you have for them if they came to you and said, you're amazing. What can I do to get better at the craft? Well, I mean, I really, yeah, I mean, I think it's so important to look at someone like Amanda Gorman, who struggled a lot. And she has a really interesting story of how her path of poetry opened and what it required of her. She's wonderful to look at as a young woman. And there are others who have forged a very unique path. But I think the main thing for poetry is start with the urge to write it and write a lot and listen a lot and look a lot and look for what you love and look for what you don't. You know, both of those can really give you an entry point to your own voice. And I think for me, reading has been very important. Like reading, uh, not just poetry, but novels. I find I read a lot of nonfiction now, like the world just hands us a lot of nonfiction but I think fiction is a great way to develop as a poet and as a writer and to be in a good voice of someone who's spent a lot of time and years learning how to tell a story. What are you working on right now? Oh, gosh, I have too many good things. I, I have another two books of poetry finished that are supposed to come out this year, and I'm getting to, ready with Poetry Month, which is this fifth year we've run a contest whose sole and main purpose is just to get people excited about and invited to a party of writing poetry with a panel of poets who choose some winners and then we all gather. But, you know, really everyone's a winner because the poems are fantastic. And we try to put all of the um, qualifying poems into some sort of public awareness. And then the winning poems, we try to celebrate the poets. But we're also, October Project is releasing an album of its own right now, which is called The Ghost of Childhood. And we just this year put out the first song from that with 
a Ukrainian sand artist named Ksenia Simonova, who's incredible. She won, I think, both Ukrainian and Britain's Got Talent, and she got a gold buzzer award in America's Got Talent. Her work is extraordinary, and she took one of our songs and expressed it as an original sand painting. And we have been using that to raise awareness and money for women and children suffering from the war. And we're doing another piece with her. It's going to be her first animation, real animation, with her color paintings. And that's underway. Like Phoebe from Doubt, she'd never done an animation. She's a fine artist, but she never animated. And so she's teaching herself that and putting that with another song of ours. And that should be underway you know, the war actually is very much affecting artists and people. So, and she's the mother of three. So we'll see how she does. But I know she'll do her best to meet a deadline of sometime this year. And we will continue our advocacy for women and children who are disrupted by war by collaborating with female artists who may be suffering, things like that. Those are a couple things. And then I'm, you know, I'm a full-time coaching consultant and I work with high achievers and creatives and leaders in business. So I'm often involved with and very excited by the worlds of my clients who do such extraordinary, impossible, wonderful things. And so I guide and coach and mentor them and help support them to stretch what they think is possible for themselves. They can enjoy lives of greater fulfillment and expression and resonance and mostly contribution. Like it really to me is important that we don't land on the planet and just, you know, inhabit. I think we're here to grow and evolve and help other people, you know. That's important. What drew you to coaching? What inspired you to go into coaching? Oh, I just think I, I like to me, I, my mentor, you know, the person I've trained with many, many years said to me, you know, the thing about you have as a coach is it's a calling. It's a hobby. Like I have always done it. I started studying that really, really early. And I've studied and applied so many modalities through my teens. I was already starting to learn various helpful ways to, you know, I just was, natural born to wanting to listen to what was going on with someone and help them have a better experience. So I've studied hypnosis, healing, Reiki, all these things, but also really hardcore business things. Like um, I was an executive recruiter for 10 years. I did a stint myself as a PR and communications professional. So it really is to me about messages of self-belief and empowerment. When you align that with competency and determination, people do fantastic things. And I, for some reason, have the ability to quickly understand what someone is trying to do and help them find either the greatest ease or the most fun or the shortest path to what they want to create in the world. And the people I work with create amazing things. I've worked with Academy Award winners and Pulitzer Prize winners. I've worked with people who have started and sold companies, people who are starting and, and creating new ways of empowerment for people who haven't had much of a chance to sit at the table of American well-being. So it's very exciting for me. And that's, you know, I would say 100% of my time is that. And then the other 100% of my time is my creative life. Because now my son is 27 years old. And though I would still see him every day if he would let me, it doesn't really happen that way. You know, he's living in New York with his girlfriend and it's different. You know, I still hold the little boy part of him and think like, oh, wow, you know, I'm still a mom. But in a way, 
you know, I've been such a good mother, I hope, that he's really self-sufficient and enjoying his own life and defining his own path. That's all any parent can hope at the end of the day when it all comes to an end and they're off on their own. Yes, but you know, it's really true. The empty nest was a really serious moment for me, more than a moment. I think a lot of the work I'm doing right now and the prolific power of what I'm doing and the like endless energy I have was just me grieving because I loved being a mother. And though it slowed my professional momentum a lot, like I couldn't tour and I was not really willing to be so far away from home all the time. So it really affected the level of success that I could foster while I still wanted to have dinner with my son or pick him up from school. That to me is a really big part of life. That decision for a woman of can I focus as a mother and remain as professionally successful? And I think the answer is no, that you actually can't maintain the same level of time, effort, energy, wellness. It's impossible and we're asked to do it. So we all do it, but it's actually impossible and cruel and terrible that we are given those kinds of choices in our society and that caretaking and mothering are so undervalued that they're unpaid labor, the most important labor in the world. And yet we then also have to hold our jobs as being the most important thing. And it's very challenging. So I think a lot about that. And part of that for me is to have a lot of sympathy for mothers. A lot of my clients have young children and or are trying to get the child through high school and now COVID for two, three years and becoming a teacher and, you know, uh, all the things. It's a really big conversation that can only take place locally. Made a lot of poems out of that. <laughs> no, I think, you know, one of the best pieces of advice I ever got when I became a mom myself was that was told that it's going to be phases and you just have to accept that it's their phases and there are going to be things that the focus is going to shift and there's no way, to, as you mentioned, keep everything completely equally, you know, balanced. It's going to shift and what, you know, for a few years, it's going to be more here. Then you're going to have a few years, it'll be somewhere else. And then you may go back to, you know, focus just kind of depending on also the needs of your kids, of your other family members, it all will shift and flow, but it's going to just understand it's phases though, and that it's okay. And just that you're going to have to ride that. It's really helpful to me. Just it is to helpful. Yeah. And I, I feel like, you know, now I've seen friends of mine, you know, become grandmothers and that's its own thing too. You know, it's like, you're like, oh gosh, you're not done. You know, there's no done. It just keeps going in a good way. You know, I, I remember one friend saying to me, when my child was a baby, I thought this was the best part. And then my child was a toddler and I thought this is the best part. And it keeps going like that. And I, I agree. As a mother, there have been challenges, but every new occasion with my son feels like, oh, this is the good part. You know, it's it's just an incredible thing to be a parent. I think it's a, for me anyway. I mean, it's not maybe for everybody. It's not what everybody wants, but for me, it is the poem of my life is that it, I had no idea. I waited a long time to have a child and boy, did I surprise myself. I thought I'll have a kid and I'll get right back to what I was doing. It was nothing like that. Not at all. It just, you know, it's just completely different than I thought it would be in a great way. And also in really challenging ways and never boring, <laughs> never boring. No. And and so much a part of our identity. I think that's the thing is that women aren't really given, as mothers, the, the place I have found identity to be the most absent until recently is moms, mothers. It wasn't considered something you wanted to claim. It's something to be a little embarrassed about. Like, I'm a mom, I'm a mother. You know, that that didn't used to be something you could say and, and 
you know, drop the mic or, or go into a stance of prestige at a party. It's pretty thankless in, in many ways and endlessly extraordinary in the way that we were talking about before, about doing something for its own sake, where it's messy and, you know, you're, it, you're making me realize that I'm going to have to send you. October Project's album has a song called Perfect Time, and it, this is not a perfect time. And this is not a perfect place. This is not a paradise, and this is not a state of grace. And it, it starts with just the disaster it is to try to make life meet your idyllic terms for it. It's going to happen how it happens, and you have to turn that into the paradise of what you choose for yourself. Wonderful advice. Julie Flanders, thank you for being on Girls That Create today. We were so happy to have you. Thank you so much, Erin. It was really wonderful. Thank you for your questions. To all of you tuning in, thank you for joining us on Girls That Create on Word of Mom Radio. Life happens in phases, and we're all doing our best. We will close out with our theme song from Smith Sisters and the Sunday Drivers. Till next time, this is Erin Prather Stafford. Thank you for joining us. She is sure. She is sure.